Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today we're joined by Dr. Mark Porter, author of the new book, Ecologies of Resonance in Christian Musicking, just published by Oxford University Press. Mark, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, Mark, you've written a great book that explores quite a variety of different ways that Christian communities have approached the act of music making across the centuries. We're eager to hear more about the study, but first, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, So I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the moment. I've spent the last four years or so in East Germany in an interdisciplinary college there, um, Max Weber College at the University of Erfurt. That's been a really interesting experience for me, um, sort of as someone that tends more now to identify as an interdisciplinary scholar. Uh, before that, um, I come from within music studies. I've been, I did my doctorate at City University London with Loudon Nushin there, and before that at Oxford and King's. But, but I think my journey throughout that has been to progressively move further and further away from the from the roots of that background towards religious studies, towards sound studies, um, towards this mixture of disciplines. Um, alongside that, I'm also a church musician. That, that, that feeds into this work as well, that practical side of what I do. Um, I grew up as an organist, but also played in worship bands, uh, played uh, at big festivals, worked with choirs, um, a whole range of stuff there. Yeah, that's great. Well, Mark, tell us a little bit about what what prompted you to write this book. Like, what provoked your interest in this subject? Was there was there a particular question you were hoping to solve or or answer? Yeah, I mean, there's a few different ways of of coming into this. Uh, the first the first way is is probably through that sort of ecumenical background I'm I'm describing. I I wanted to write something that dealt with uh, multiple Christian traditions of music making as as someone that myself moves between different traditions on a regular basis uh, and something that tried to help uh, understand what's going on with music across those kinds of traditional boundaries. Uh, so that, that was one impulse. Uh, the second impulse really is this idea of resonance, um, which comes from the idea that when I'm in a particular musical environment, one of the things that distinguishes it from another one is often the kinds of relationship I'm forming with the world around me through sound and, and that felt experience that actually if I'm writing about multiple traditions, that's one of the key things that distinguishes between them. Here I form this kind of relationship with the world, with other people, with God. In, in another tradition, I form a very different kind of relationship or set of relationships, I suppose, or interactions. I mean, other things that prompted it coming across particular authors, particular bodies of theory, and then putting together the, the different chapters was a, a matter of sort of just seeing what sparked my interest in different areas. The whole thing um, was an attempt to say, okay, what might be interesting here? What might be interesting there? That you'll notice in the in the book, it's quite a perhaps a fairly random selection of case studies. I, I, I'm not sure that 
anyone trying to come up with a comprehensive history or cartography of contemporary Christian music making would come up with this selection. But it is a selection which said, okay, what are the places I can go that really highlight these these different modes of being, these different ways of looking at things? Yeah, that that is um, that's, that's so interesting. Um, you know, in your title, you talk about uh, you know, you really define a couple of key terms. So you really use this um, this idea of resonance in a very uh, technical, analytical way. Tell us a little bit about what you're really looking at when 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 you're talking about resonance um, and you know the ecologies of resonance, and 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 then you also talk about musicking, which maybe is an, an unfamiliar term to some of our listeners. Tell us a little bit about those those technical terms. Yeah, I mean, writing a theory heavy project was a a sort of new adventure for me. And that, that partly came out of the move to Germany and to, um, from being an institution which very much likes working with theory and being led by theory. So I thought, uh, I'll give that a go. I'll see what, what it looks like to adopt that approach to writing. I mean, my, my previous book was uh, built up upon ethnography from the, the ground up and the theory came in at a later stage, but then this sort of reversed the direction. Um, so yeah, there's those three words in the title. I'm not sure any of which are completely self-explanatory. Um, resonance, that's a, it's a word which I use in connection with a few different theorists. Um, but taking it back to basics, it's, it's the idea of re, resounding, that something that sounds in one place then sounds and resounds in another. So when a sound sounds in my body, that then enters the space around and it resounds there and it, and it travels and resounds in different things, in different spaces, in, in different ways. Um, that's a very literal way of talking about sound and I'm straying perhaps a, a little from uh, very reductionist physical definitions of what resonance is, uh, but that's part of the fun I'm having in this book, sort of playing with this word a bit. And so I layer on top of that various more metaphorical, more sociological ideas of what resonance might be. So I work with the ideas of Hartmut Rosa. He has um, a theory of world relationship built around the idea of resonance that what people are really looking for in their world relations is this feeling that the world answers back. And for him, that's the idea of resonance, this responsive feeling um, I mean, there's a lot of other work on resonance in protest literature and things like that. The idea that particular things resonate with me or create a certain group dynamic. And those kinds of understandings are all there too. But essentially the idea that sound spreads, it interacts, and that as it does so, it carries with it more than simply physical vibration. That there's, there's a social element to that, there's a spiritual element to that that's always or at least often carried along with the sound in particular ways. I think musicking is a, is a term that's become more and more natural for me to use over the last five or 10 years. It becomes easier to talk about musicking than, than music. And the roots of the term is the work of Christopher Small back in the, in the 90s. And it was an attempt to reframe what music is about, to say that music is about activity. It's about interaction. It, it's not about music as an object, um, as is, or at least used to be so often discussed in musicology, a focus on works and composers. It's a move to that idea of this musical act being really where the centrally important things happen. Uh, and 
alongside that, it's an attempt to draw in a range of people into that act beyond simply the performer, the composer, and perhaps a listener. Um, so when Small defines the term, he's trying to talk about the whole range of people that are involved in some way in a musical act so that the cleaner that prepares the space for the event is is musicking anyone that dances is perhaps musicking the people that are selling tickets it's this whole ecology of, of different people and actions coming together and that uh, brings us to the other word in, in my title, ecologies. So ecologies there, I'm not using in the sense of a green environmental way. I'm using it in the sense of this set of people and interactions that are that are taking place. Um, and to say that if we look at uh, a particular musical traditional act, it's this whole ecology, which is which is really one of the interesting things about it. Yeah, that's great. Um, very interesting. Uh, I'd like to start with maybe your, well, we'll start with your first case study. And um, you really, you talked about some kind of that kind of arbitrariness of some of these case studies that might be, if you were just doing a straight history of music, yep. you know, you start with desert monastic communities, which I, I don't usually see at the, at the beginning of my, my um, histories of Christian music. Tell us a little bit about what caused you to, to go to these desert uh, communities and and what did you find was really interesting there? I mean, again, there's a few different things that led me there. Um, the first was a very personal thing, having spent the the last few years before beginning this book living in an ecumenical house in in North Oxford with a lot of Orthodox Christians, um, Russians, Greeks in particular. They they were people who were often very interested in these early ascetic traditions, or at least the ones I had conversations with were. And so I began reading them and I, I was intrigued and I wanted to sort of do something with that. And I mean, the other thing was finding myself in Erfurt in an interdisciplinary institute where I was surrounded by a lot of people working on ancient religion. Um, it was uh, a situation where there were people there that could almost give me permission to to move into this area. I was aware that I had people that, that, that knew perhaps ancient history or what they were doing with ancient history better than me. So if I tried an idea out, if I said, what can I as, as an ethnomusicologist say about this, then these are people who can correct me and say, no, that's crazy. Don't, don't say that. Don't do that. Uh, but, but testing my ideas out with these people, I found they were very, very accepting and, and, and enjoyed what I was doing there. Mm. Um, so there are a couple of very practical things that led there. But in the context of the book, the, the thing is, when I'm looking at these ecologies of interaction, one of the things I wanted to do was really strip things down to this, this simple situation. It's very early, so perhaps without some of the later layers of traditional, though, of course, it has its own. Um, but also it's a almost the simplest musical situation you can have one person alone chanting without any uh, worked out musical compositions or, or elaborate musical frameworks. And so I wanted to see, okay, what can you, we say in this simplest of, of situations? And I, I found it a very revealing situation to write about mm -hmm. uh, because you can't write about notes you can't analyze harmony you can't analyze 
scales. There's a lot of things you can't say, particularly when we don't have the notation on the sounds available to us. Uh, and so you find in this context, the idea uh, of chanting music is constantly pushing out towards other things. So when I started thinking about what music and sound might be doing in that des desert situations, uh, I found that things like landscape, things like body, things like architecture, things like the surrounding spiritual world uh, become the important things that frame this act. What, what is happening uh, within this broader aesthetic project with these different things and how is music and sound uh, becoming part of those interactions. Um, and some of that's more speculative and some of that is much more directly based on on the sets of writings we have and the directions we they point us in. And so you do find in, in the writings of the Desert Fathers quite a few descriptions of... Um, I mean, the terminology here is, is tricky. We can talk about music, we can talk about singing, chants. They're often fairly anachronistic terms. But when, when we look at whatever this psalm recitation might be, then, then often these other things come in. So psalms are used in combat against demons, for example. You find descriptions of of recitation in the context of the monastic cell and as something which is very tightly tied to, to the work of the monk in that particular location. Or there's a lot of talk about sound and silence in, in the desert and that then very quickly brings you to questions of landscape and this broader landscape around them. And, and of course with ascetic projects where issues of eating and, and drinking and the body are so much in the foreground, uh, of course, it feels like um, sound and recitation, which are also a very bodily thing, somehow tie into those those broader projects. And, and so I found in, in that broader set of interactions that, that there were fascinating things to write about and to explore and what what seems perhaps like a, a relatively simple situation, which from perspective of musical analysis or something like that might be relatively dull to write about actually is remarkably rich and perhaps one of the richest chapters of the book in terms of the range of different concerns it brings in which I was pleasantly surprised by in this this exploration yeah, that's that's right. I, I I felt the same thing reading the book that I was surprised at how by going to that very um, kind of stripped away um, context that the the tools and the the ideas that you're presenting really become so much clearer than through the remaining chapters. Um, we won't spend much time on, on this, but uh, in contrast to the silence mm -hmm. of the desert, you talk about the noisiness of of Bach. Um, so, so are you suggesting that my concert hall experience of the Bach Mass in B minor is maybe not as authentic as uh, as I thought? <laughs> um, I mean, we, we've known for some time within within musicology that ideals of authenticity are often very much constructed ideals, and that we can't always take them quite as um, historically seriously as we we might want to um 
but th- this idea of a Bach mass or a Bach cantata performance being a noisy situation it is is something that I stumbled across in the work of Tanya Kavorkian. And so she's done a lot of the sort of sociological historical research, which, which says um, this Leipzig church where, where Bach was writing, where, where his uh, work was being performed, would have been a fairly noisy environment during a service. People would have been coming and going. They would have been socializing. Uh, there would have been students playing pranks. You would have jingling collection bags um, and you would have a whole set of interactions which we in our contemporary bark performances try to minimize um, I mean other people have written about this in in other contexts such as the Paris opera or things like that but I think we haven't explored it up until now in the context of church music and what it might mean there there, there, there are a couple of different possible responses to that kind of situation. Uh, one is to say, okay, th- this kind of stuff was happening, but that wasn't really what Bach was, was wanting. That wasn't the trajectory that music was taking. Um, and that ultimately Bach was moving us slowly towards this ideal of silent listening. Um, and there are other musicologists that have taken that tack. So in the chapter, I discussed John Butt, who who reacts to Kovorkin's work in that way. Um, I, I wanted to try the other tack. I wanted to say, okay, pay, perhaps that, that's legitimate. I don't want to say that's it, completely illegitimate. But what happens if we try out the other possibility, that this noisy environment could be um, something which is uh, perhaps not simply problematic, but, but revealing that it can show us something about what it means to experience music in a different way and what um, and might open us up to a richness of experiencing music that isn't available in the same way via silent listening. So what happens when sociality and uh, musical performance are, are integrated rather than separate? What happens if we're a bit less controlling of our musical experiences, perhaps a little bit less reverent towards the composer. Um, I mean, you'll notice that there are a fair few different um, examples I bring up through the chapter of of ways that I've found different experiences of of this kind can open us up. So the first at the beginning of the book is a description of listening to music alongside the sound of rain. And I think that's a something that I do but I mean I think that's increasingly common there's YouTube channels that begin to do this kind of thing a lot recently Um, and the fact is that sometimes that noise alongside the music rather than being a distraction opens up the world onto a different canvas Mm. Um, and I I discuss also a, a Radio 4 drama which is to do with a performance of Romeo and Juliet where you have uh, a struggling school, a struggling teacher, um, and he wants to teach these pupils Shakespeare, and he's trying to teach them uh, how it's relevant to their lives. I mean, yeah, what what all teachers probably try. Uh, but where this leads to, in the end, via a series of um, mishaps and, uh, and problems, is a performance of the Shakespeare play uh, not on a stage, but in an open square within within the town or 
yeah, I forget exactly where it is. Um, but the fact is that th this situation then is one where other noises, other interactions are happening at the same time as the performance. And those are precisely then what restores this relationship between the meaning of the play and the everyday lives of these people and what's going on for them. And so it's, it's an act of restoring meaning. And I, I think we can think about these, these Bach performances in a similar way. Um, and they can then lead us to think about other situations we're in in, in similar ways. I mean, churches, uh, worship environments often have to think about what to do with, with noise in their, in their gatherings, what to do with children running around during services is one of the most obvious examples Um but also classical performances beginning to think about this. What happens if we resituate classical performances from the concert hall into more uh, open social environments? I think this is a, a trend that various people want to explore in different ways. And, and I put my own spin on it here. Uh, and I, I think it's a very interesting one to explore. So, Mark, there's another um, pair of chapters that you have that contrast contemporary evangelical music with um, the emerging church, and they, they really play, these chapters play off one another quite a bit. Tell us a little bit about um, how the, the ecologies of resonance um, are, are especially distinct between these two, these two movements. Yeah, sure. Um, so my doctoral work was very squarely focused on an evangelical charismatic congregation and experiences of music within that. And so I've been working with that field of scholarship for a long time. When people write about evangelical worship music, increasingly they're using terms such as authenticity and sacrament to frame their writing. That these are two things which really get to the heart of what evangelical worship music is about. And so what do we mean by those? Uh, authenticity often refers, in this context, the idea of authentic expression, the idea that in worship music, individuals and congregations are trying to authentically express their heart um, through the music to God, but also into the world around. Um, so that's a, an outwardly focused dynamic. And then also alongside that, the idea of sacrament, which is perhaps not a word which evangelicals themselves would would naturally go to, and, and various evangelicals would question the use of this term, but I, I, I think it points to something important, and that is the idea that through music and sound, there is this idea that you're receiving something from God, that God is present in it in, in some way, um, this, this famous um, scriptural quotation that God inhabits the praises of his people. And there's this expectation then that in sound, at the very least, whether or not the sound literally carries it, in that experience of sound and music, God is thought to be present and you're thought to receive something from him. So I, I frame my discussion of evangelical worship music in terms of these different concepts and, and explore their different shifts and turns in different situations and in different ways uh, they've been understood. But the, the important work of that chapter is to say that it's better not to think of these as separate dynamics, but to think of this broader, think of them within this broader context of resonant interaction, that they're part of this broader complex of back and forth interaction as, 
as sound comes to me from the stage, I sing out to my neighbor, they sing out. There's this whole complex that's set up whereby I can express myself in that situation and whereby I can receive something. And so when we think about that, um, there's often a very strong set of expectations as to how that experience might work. And there's often an expectation that the congregation as a whole is experiencing this together, that they're expected to experience in certain ways. And that, that it's this, it's not a completely unified whole, but there's this strong sense of a, a shared emotional, spiritual activity and experience. And so in discussing the emerging church and, and what's going on musically and sonically there, I mean, the emerging church, another contested term, whether we like that word or not, it's, it's a useful one that I use as a shorthand here. Um, often what groups there are doing when they're thinking about their own musical and sonic practices is reacting to what they've experienced within a charismatic evangelical context. Not all of them, they're not all post-evangelicals, but a lot of the way they frame what they're doing with music and worship is when you talk to them about it. And that's this desire to move away from a situation that is high pressure, um, high emotion, um, to something where there's a, a bit more freedom, where music doesn't expect so much of you, where you're free to experience things in slightly different ways. And a sense that they experience that in terms of something which creates space. And so I, I found resonance a helpful way to think about this, this shift. So that the set of interactions in and through music in this situation is a very, very different one. It's one where music isn't um, so directly resounding in you and where you're not then being, being moved by it sort of automatically into, well, semi-automatically into movement and expression, but where, which is very closely connected with um, ambient ideals, ambient movement, and where music then is allowed to sound in the space around you. But then you have the choice to hook into that as and when you want to um, in a way that makes sense for you. And different groups do that in different ways. So that, that's one of the struggles of this chapter, that within this movement, groups rarely share uh, the same musical practices. And so that might be in terms of musical diversity, that, that there's a whole range of different musical elements which different members of a group bring with them. And then that diversity is what sort of pre prevents a totalizing dynamic taking hold that you're constantly shifting in, in different ways. It might simply be a move to, yep, to more ambient soundscapes, where, which is, uh, which don't enlist the body in the same way. Or in the case of Icon in Belfast, perhaps one of the more notorious emerging church um, groups, it's often more about provocation and, and disturbing to find that you're being pushed in one way and then something surprises you and, and takes you in another, and expectations are often subverted. And that, that again, is this, this disruption to this, this unified resonance scheme, which breaks things up, 
which provides a different model of of interaction and experience. Yeah. So you you talked about the um, one of the distinctives as being a kind of a a, a more personal autonomous interaction with the the musicking which i think brings us nicely into your your final chapter which maybe is a is something of a blend between the those two polarities and that's you talk about the the live stream prayer room practices especially coming out of the international house of prayer in kansas city now of course you were doing a lot of this writing uh before and, and research long before the the covid pandemic but now churches all over the globe find themselves in very similar situations of having to broadcast their, their um, worship music um, from a centralized location into homes and living rooms. So, so tell us a little bit about what you observed in the, in the, the live stream prayer room context. And, and then maybe talk a little bit about, are there any things that you, you observed, any... Um, any tools or, or frameworks that, that might be helpful for, for churches who are, you know, in, in many cases doing this for the very first time on the fly in, in recent months? Yeah. Yeah, I found this live streaming chapter a, a fascinating thing to put together. Um, I mean, I did most of my research in, in Germany, but via, via Skype, via Zoom, uh, also via visits to prayer rooms there. Um, I mean, one of the most fascinating things for me about this live streaming was was the range of different possibilities it offered. So when we're thinking about it, you've got the live stream in in Kansas City. And so the people are doing music and worship there. And so within that room, you've got the musicians, which are doing things on stage. And as a visitor there, you would have the option to take part in that as part of a sort of shared group dynamic in the room. But because of this prayer room environment, you also have the opportunity to sit down, to reflect, to choose not to interact in that way. So already within one location, we've got a range of different ways that people can use that. And then you add the fact that they're streaming that. So when that's streamed, that can be streamed into your own home or it can be streamed into other prayer rooms. And the idea behind the live stream was that this would provide a resource for other prayer rooms that wanted to use music and worship on this kind of 24-7 basis, which prayer rooms do, but which might not have their own musicians, um, or at least not enough musicians to do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so within these other prayer rooms, you've then got an additional layer of possible interaction with that distant space. And again, you've got the choice to sort of stand up, sing, join in with that, or sit passively in your seat. But in those other prayer rooms, of course, you've also sometimes got live musicians. So another way of interacting, another sort of choice or option. And then you've got the choice to listen to this individually at home. And and, and so this is a situation where people are are presented with not something which simply forces them into in individualized solitary experience, um, but where they always have the option of group participation, whether that's with local group uh, others or with that sort of distant group. Um, 
and, and that can come together in, in different ways. And so I talk about that in, in terms of assemblage, the idea that there's not an inherent logic as to how this has to fit together, but rather you've got this thing that's put out there and then it can come into connection with different people, different spaces, and then they can engage it in, in different ways, which, which are idiosyncratic to that. And it has a kind of f inherent flexibility to that, which I find really compelling. I mean, largely because that flexibility, again, doesn't force us automatically into individualization, that these, these options of group participation in some way, whether through the internet or through interaction with other people in that local room are, are available. And so, I mean, this uh, whole chapter is framed in terms of different words beginning with the letter A. So uh, that word assemblage was the first one. Affordance is, is the next one. So uh, this is a concept taken from Tia Denora and her work on music in everyday life. I, I forget where she herself gets it from. I think she might go back to Adorno. But the idea that when we're talking about music and what music does, there's not necessarily one thing it automatically does. And at the same time, it doesn't automatically open itself up to each and every interpretation that someone might put on it, but rather it affords a range of possible uh, uses and interpretations based on what it does. And, and I think the live stream is something that, again, affords that. Um, where, when I talk with, with people in the room, a lot of what they're doing, they frame in terms of agreement, which is a very sort of charismatic prayer room kind of word. But it also has to do with this, these kinds of interaction. When I agree with so, what someone is praying in a sort of either passive or active way, then that's a, a way of forming a connection with them, but also with God, um, regardless perhaps of any distance between them. And then the other phrase was this, rather the, the other word was this idea of atmosphere. When people about talk about what the live stream does, one of the most important things is the idea of that it creates an atmosphere. And that also what's transmitted via the live stream is atmosphere. That when I put the live stream on in my uh, living room, bathroom, bedroom at home, um, it transmits a kind of atmosphere from the place where it was originally created. And then that atmosphere also transforms the room that I'm in and so it takes on the atmosphere of of that other place and what that means I mean that can be understood in very emotional uh, psychological terms but often there's this idea behind it that there's something spiritual going on there as well that um, the presence of God might be might be coming along with that and the, the question of how that works is, is, is a very interesting one that the different participants uh, or sorry, interview um, partners talked about in different ways. So you might think of the idea that God is perhaps or something spiritual is transmitted over the Internet with with that music and sound. Uh, some might think about it that way. Uh, or you might think about the idea, one of them was talking about the idea of God synchronizing up action between different locations. Um, 
So God might be doing something over there in Kansas, but he's not constrained by time and space in the same way. So he finds that as they're listening to live stream, they have the experience that God is also doing something similar here and now. Um, and whether that has to be live or whether that can happen via recordings was a, was another question which different people approach in, in different ways. I think some people very much found that live experience to be important. Uh, some, it was no different whether they were listening to something live or whether they were looking at an archive recording. It could work in the same way. Hmm. Um, I, I think it was fascinating. You're right, seeing this sort of come out and being published just uh, in the middle of the pandemic where churches are experimenting with live streamed or or online recorded worship in ways that a lot of them haven't before. I think my work in this book more generally has something to say to that situation as well as this chapter in particular. I think one of the things that people have really talked about a lot during the pandemic is is congregational singing and the idea that a lot of them miss the idea of congregational singing and they don't know what to do without it, or they want to be able to do that again. Uh, and one of the things the different chapters of this book have to say is that that model of congregational singing is simply one option among a range of different Christian models of musical interaction, and that there are other alternatives here, other alternative embodied and powerful ways of experiencing music, which are predicated on a different set of interactions so it, I, I want one of the things I want to do in in this book as a whole is to try and stir that imagination to to say okay may, maybe congregational singing is important but also look at these other other possibilities you don't need to keep coming back to that as the one and only way of doing things mm. the other thing of course is what what do we think about when we're trying to do music a live stream is it that we create uh, a good performance a good reproduction of what we would typically do do we try to somehow recreate the kind of group experience we would have in a congregation virtually what, what is the important thing at the center of that that live stream musical interaction i mean if you're thinking about if you're someone who routinely attends a charismatic mega church or something you can't have 2000 people in your living room you can't have that same shared group experience but but i think the live stream does show that there are ways we can understand uh what 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 can happen in that situation of of internet connectivity in terms of uh the freedom to experience things in different ways but the fact that uh questions such as atmosphere are often perhaps the important ones to think about there. What, what kind of atmosphere are we creating? What kind of atmosphere might that be able to create in, in different home environments via that live streaming? Uh, and how can we think about these sort of, yeah, these, these different assemblages as, as they come together? We shouldn't think simply about the transmission from one place to another, but we should think perhaps about these other locations becoming part of that assemblage. So how does a, a living room also become part of that set of interactions? How do other things sort of join in in often unexpected ways? Um, how does 
uh, an ad hoc group of people in a house, how do they come together as a group or a set of individuals that, that relate to this in, in, in different ways? Again, I, I perhaps don't point in the direction of answers here, but to say there's a lot of interesting questions to open up and a lot of things to be tried out uh, and, and that they're worth trying out and thinking about. Absolutely. It's, it's really, you've given us some really, um, some really good questions, some really good tools to start evaluating um, in different, different uh, practices, different types of, of ways of, of going about the act of, of musicking. Well, Mark, you've been, you've been so generous with your, your time this morning. Uh, you know, before we go, I would just like to, to hear from you. What are you working on next? Yeah, good question. Um, I'm, working on a few different things right now uh this week we just got the proofs from the publisher for another book which is coming out next march on on ethics and christian musicking so that's an edited collection looking at um ethical issues that come up in a whole range of different uh settings there we've got 14 exciting contributors there um i've also begun some of my own research on on ecology in a much more literal sense. So I'm doing a project now on music and changing environmental relationships. So how are different Christian groups currently innovating in response to the environmental crisis we're in? So I've been doing some field work over that um, over the last year for that with uh, Christian groups in the Extinction Rebellion, with forest church groups, people writing requiems for climate change um, with evangelical songwriting project doxicology and uh, i'm finding that massively exciting work to be to be uh, exploring yeah it sounds very interesting uh hopefully we'll, we can have you back on the show to talk about those once they're uh, once they're out i hope so well yeah um it's been it's been such a delight to have you join us uh once again the book is ecologies of resonance in christian musicking it's available now through oxford university press Thank you, Mark, for sharing your excellent book with us. Thank you. A pleasure. And thank you for listening to New Books in Christian Studies. You can find more information about Mark and his book in the podcast show notes or on our page at newbooksnetwork.com. Have a great day.